Y'all turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, uh, as we continue our series on the journey to joy. Uh, for those of you who are into American history, or for those of you who are over a certain age, you're, you'll know the story I'm about to tell you. In 1955, uh, a young woman, a young African-American woman named Rosa Parks was going home from work. Uh, she was on the bus going home from work and was told, you need to go sit in the back of the bus. That's the law in Alabama. Black people sit in the back. And she refused. And that was the beginning of the Montgomery bus boycott, which was one of the first uh, big civil rights uh, actions that got widespread news. So essentially, black folks all across Montgomery said, you know, if this is the law, if that's how they're going to treat us, we're going to hit them in their pocketbooks. We're going to take away, they're not going to get our money from riding their buses. So we'll just walk to work. Now imagine, imagine every day knowing you've got to get up and you've got to walk to your job, whether it's three miles, whether it's 10 miles. Now imagine also this, this boycott lasted for over a year while they waited for the Supreme Court to make a ruling. And in fact, the Supreme Court finally came down and said that law is unconstitutional. But in the meantime, those people had to walk through the pouring rain, through the freezing cold, um, through the hot, hot summer. I'm pretty sure Montgomery, Alabama is just about as hot as Montgomery County, Texas. And in the middle of this of this grueling campaign, a reporter spotted an elderly woman walking to work one day, and they they pulled her over, or they they pulled her aside and said, "Ma'am, aren't you tired?" And she said, and I quote, "My feet's is tired, but my soul is rested." And I love that, and and I have to say that. Grammar Nazis like I can be sometime, we want to focus on the first part of that and say, well, you know, she didn't have access to education, so she didn't understand that it should be my feet are tired. But that's not the point. The point is, she didn't know grammar, but I bet she knew the King James Bible better than I do. I bet she knew, I bet she knew Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29, where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and you will find rest for your souls. What she was saying was, not everything's fine, everything's beautiful, life is the way it ought to be. No, she was saying, my feet are tired. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to walk to work. We shouldn't be living in a country where just because I'm a, a different color, I can't ride the bus where I want to ride. I, this, it shouldn't be this way. My feet are tired. But my soul is at rest. I'm not bitter. I'm not angry. I'm not about to give up. I'm not weeping. I am rested inside. And I got plenty more where that came from. That, my friends, is joy. See, we've been talking about joy since the beginning of this series. And, and you know, people say, well, what is joy? It sounds like happiness to me. Happiness depends on your circumstances. But joy is this quality that only Jesus can give you. And here's what joy means. It means that when you have everything you want... You're able to rejoice in such a way that it doesn't become idolatry. You don't worship the gifts you've been given. You, it just drives you closer to God. And when, when things aren't going the way you want them to, it doesn't defeat you. You still find reason to rejoice. You still find reason to give thanks. So we've been looking at this letter to the Philippians, no greater example than the Apostle Paul. They're in prison, suffering an injustice at least as bad as the black folks of, Al of Montgomery, Alabama, because he was in prison for preaching a message of love and salvation, about to be executed possibly simply for exercising his religious freedom. 
And yet he's not angry. He's not self-pitying. He's writing a letter that says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. How did he do it? We've been looking at how you find joy in the book of Philippians. And we've seen how joy comes when we invest in the lives of others and don't stay stuck on ourselves. It comes when we, when we do the hard work of maintaining healthy relationships with everyone God brings into our lives. It, it, it comes when we are focused on the life after this one instead of just focused on the things of this earth. It, it comes when we work on our salvation. We, we actually work on our growth in Christ and become truly the people He's created us to be. Last week, Alan told us about the inner life is the key and, and how the things we think about, the things we set our minds upon can lead to joy. Today, we're going to look at another, another way we find contentment or find joy, and that is through the hidden treasure of contentment. Contentment is, is a treasure that nobody seems to want, and yet it's so wonderful. So let's talk about what Paul writes in verses 10 through 14, 10 through 13 of chapter 4. He writes, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, what is Paul talking about there? Remember, Paul is in prison and he's received a, a gift of some kind from the Philippian church. These are friends of his in another city. Their pastor, Epaphroditus, has brought some kind of a financial gift to Paul. They probably took up a collection and said, here, Paul, take care of your needs. And Paul is writing this letter as a thank you note. And what he's saying there is, boy, I sure appreciate knowing that you remembered me, but now he wants to say... I don't want you to think that I'm unfortunate. I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I don't want you to think that if you hadn't given me this gift, I would have given up hope because that's not the case at all. He goes on and writes, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. Notice he says, I have learned to be content in any and every circumstance. I have learned. You know what that means? That means contentment doesn't come naturally. It's something you have to learn. It's a skill you have to develop. And we all know this because we've all been children. And those of us who've raised children, we know this especially because a child doesn't come out of the womb content, do they? They cry. They cry a lot. And in fact, if you have more than one child, you probably had one that's a little more high maintenance than the other. Neither one was content, though. Both of them cried. Both of them fussed. Both of them made their needs known. I, one of my favorite comedians is Jim Gaffigan. He has this thing he says. He says, you can't say the words ice cream to a two-year-old. Because if you say the words ice cream, your two-year-old thinks it's a promise. You say, you mention ice cream, he's like, yeah, yeah, I want some right now. And you say, well, no, 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 daddy was just, was just saying the words ice cream. He says, I know, I want chocolate right now. Because that's how they are. They just think, they just think if, if I want it, I should have it. And it takes a while as a child to learn that you can't always get what you want. I mean, even the, the dadgum Rolling Stones were right about that, weren't they? You can't always have it just because you want it. And that's hard for us to get our minds around. There's a, there's a psalm, Psalm 131, verse 2. And it says, But I have calmed and quieted myself. 
I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Some of you have experienced this in parenting. The process of weaning a child isn't fun. But a weaned child is a child that doesn't cry all the time because it's recognized. Sometimes I'm hungry, but I can wait. Now, here's the thing. How does a child get weaned? How do you wean a child? You're not going to like this. Strategic disappointment. That's the process of contentment. It's learning in strategic ways. Sometimes I want things, but I don't actually need them. It's, it's that parent saying to it, the, the child, I know you're crying right now because you think you're hungry, but I saw you eat less than an hour ago. You don't need food. You need to wait. And over time, that child realizes just because I cry doesn't mean I'm going to get food. And right now, there's a lot of us as Christians that we're like that unweaned child. And we're crying and we're complaining and we're whining and we're fussing and we're blaming others and we're pitying ourselves and we're making ourselves miserable. And guess what? We're making everyone around us miserable because we haven't discovered the secret of contentment. Now, you might be sitting there saying, now, wait a second. You're saying I should just be content with what I have. But I'm an American, doggone it. I, I read part of the Declaration of Independence. It says I have the right to the pursuit of happiness. So what's wrong with me wanting better things? Isn't that the message? Of, isn't that the American dream that I can start at the bottom? I can get to the top? Isn't it right for me to compete and always want the best for myself? Isn't it good for me to always want to better my circumstances? Yes. I'm not saying it's wrong to want better things. I'm not saying it's wrong to get better things. What I am saying is, when your life is based on changing your circumstance, when that is your whole goal, you will make yourself and everyone around you miserable. But when you learn to find joy in what you have right now, when you learn to find that contentment, you'll have joy. And that blesses you and that blesses others. I'll give you a perfect example. So when my daughter Kaylee was a little bitty, I love to take her out on daddy-daughter dates. We would go to all these places. We'd go to parks. We'd go to zoos. We'd go to movies. And I remember my mom one time saying, you know, Jeff, if you keep taking her on these dates, no man is ever going to be good enough for her. And I said, exactly. <laughs> Method to my madness. But one time I had, I had what I thought was the perfect date picked out. We went to the Houston Museum of Natural Science, and they have this, this thing there called the Butterfly Center. If, I don't know if you've been there or not, but if you haven't, it's worth the drive. Uh, it's, it's this perfect little rainforest uh, environment, and it's beautiful on its own, but then they release all these butterflies into the environment, and they're just fluttering all over the place. Now, this was going to be great, right? But it didn't turn out to be great because my three-year-old daughter decided that it was her goal that day for a butterfly to land on her. She knew the rules. She knew she couldn't catch a butterfly and hold it, but she wanted one to land on her spontaneously. Now, how do you make that happen? Well, she tried running after the butterflies, and it didn't work. Then she tried standing still, but just leaning toward the butterflies. That didn't work. And she was getting more and more upset, and I'm thinking, this is the worst date ever. I, I'm terrible at this. And then finally, we discovered that in the little river that runs through the rainforest there, there are all these really colorful fish. And so we're counting the fish and we're finding different colors. And right in the middle of that, I look over at Kaylee and I say, I see there's a butterfly that's landed right on her head. And I yelled out, Kaylee, you got one. And, and honestly, I don't know to this day if we're welcome at the Butterfly Center anymore. But 
it reminded me later on when I, when I, I, remi- I remembered that incident later on when I read this quote from Nathaniel Hawthorne. Remember the name Nathaniel Hawthorne? If you've ever taken high school English, you had to read um, the, the Scarlet Letter, right? So Nathaniel Hawthorne, this guy that's responsible for the unhappiness of millions of American teenagers, he actually said this quote. He actually wrote this. He said, happiness is like a butterfly, which when pursued is always beyond our grasp. But if you will sit quietly, it may alight upon you. Harder you chase after happiness, the more you say, I can't be happy unless I have this. I can't be happy until my circumstances change in this way. I cannot possibly enjoy life unless this circumstance is different. It's not going to work. Even if you catch that butterfly, it's going to die in your hands. But if you can just be still and know that He is God, if you can just learn contentment with the things that He has given you, that joy will alight upon you. You won't even know how it happened. Suddenly you'll realize, I am so blessed. So how do we do that? How do we achieve this contentment? How do we learn this skill? Three things. Number one, we need to give our desires to God. We need to give our desires over to Him. Because if I were to ask you, what is the number one cause of problems in the world today. What causes sin and hatred and violence and and anger? And you'd probably say, well, that's the devil because that's what you expect us to say because we're in church, right? But actually the Bible says something different. You can look it up. In James chapter 4, 1 through 3, it says that our desires are what cause problems. That our desires are what lead to unhappiness. We want things that we can't have. We hate people who have the things we want. We get mad at God because He hasn't given us what we asked for. Our desires are killing us. And you might say, well, does that mean we need to just get rid of all desire? Well, that's actually what they teach in Buddhism and in some other Eastern religions. Yeah, just eliminate desire and then you'll be happy. But that's not the message of the Bible. The Bible clearly says that desire is a good thing. God created you for desires for, for certain things. After all, if we didn't have a desire for the opposite sex, there wouldn't be a human race. We would cease to reproduce. Um, so, for instance, 1 Timothy um, chapter 6, verse 8 says, if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Do you hear the implication there? He says... We, can, we should be content when our basic needs are being met. He doesn't say we should be happy and satisfied if we don't have enough food to eat, if we don't have enough clothes to wear. That, that elderly woman in Montgomery, Alabama was right to not be satisfied with a world where there was so much inequality. It's not wrong to, to try to want to change circumstances that are messed up. That's not wrong. But what it is saying is... Don't let desires rule you. Don't say, because I want this, I must have it. So for instance, um, there's a wife perhaps who wishes her husband would listen to him like he did when they were dating. And a husband who wishes his wife would be as affectionate and as responsive as she was before the kids were born. Um, There's an elderly woman who wishes her arthritis would go away. And an elderly man who wishes his kids would call more often. And there's a young woman who wishes the girls at school would be more nice to her. And there's a young man who wishes he could afford a better car. And let me say to you, none of those desires are bad. 
None of those desires are sinful. They don't need to repent of desiring those things. But when you fall victim to the if-only syndrome, if only I had a husband like she does, if only I could look like he does, if only I could have the job that she has, if only I could have the house that he has, then, then I would be happy. Well, no, that's not true. You've let your desires tell you a lie. So what does it mean to give your desires to God? Well, think again about that two-year-old with the ice cream. What does that two-year-old need to learn? They need to learn that mom and dad know best. See, the worst thing that can happen in that situation is the two-year-old screams for ice cream and the, and the parents go, well, I guess we better give it to her or we'll never have a moment's peace. You don't want to be that, that, that child's teacher someday or that child's spouse someday, do you? The best thing that can happen is that child gets told no and eventually grows up into a young woman who says, you know, I want ice cream, but if mom and dad say no, there's probably a good reason for that. So here's, here's what I want to challenge you with, Christian. Every single one of you, this is a hard thing. Pray to God and ask Him for the things that are on your heart. Don't lie. Don't pretend. You don't need to pretend with God. If you want something, ask Him for it. That's what He wants from you. But as you ask Him for it, whether it's healing for your illness, whether it's, whether it's reconciliation in your marriage, whether it's for things to be better between you and someone you love, whether it's uh, more money or, or a better job or better circumstances in any, any way, bring them before the Lord, but then say this, Lord, here's what I want. But if you choose to say no, teach me to be content with that no. Lord, here's what I want, but if that's not your will for me, help me to be content with your will. Now that's a scary prayer. Because you're basically giving God permission to say no. But guess what? God isn't controlled by your prayers. He's going to say yes or no based on His will anyway. You're just preparing your heart to grow either way. To say hallelujah if God says yes. And if He says no, to grow in contentment. He can do that. It's saying, Lord, I want a better marriage. But in the meantime, if my husband and I don't change, if my wife and I don't change, teach me to be content with who I am married to. I, I wish that I had a better job. But Lord, until I get a better job, help me to find joy there. Lord, I wish, I wish we lived in a better neighborhood. But until that time comes, teach me contentment where I am. That's a beautiful prayer. It's a hard prayer. But that's what I'm challenging you to do. Second thing, recognize the voices that destroy contentment. There are all these voices around us that, that seek to make us discontented. In fact, that's the whole point of advertising, isn't it? And, and no offense if you work in advertising. I've got friends who work in that industry. It's, it's a perfectly legitimate business. Hope you do it well. But that's the point of advertising, isn't it? It's to say, well, you can't be happy living in this house. You need to buy a house out here on the lake or out in the, in the woods, and then you would be really happy. Or this loft downtown, that would make you happy. You can't possibly be happy wearing those out-of-style clothes. Why don't you spend just a little bit more at our store, and you'll look fantastic. Think about how good you'll feel about yourself. You can't possibly be happy looking the way you look. You need to lose weight, and I've got the plan for you. You just come and join our gym. You just buy our nutritional products and, and follow our plan, and you're going to look fantastic. And think about how happy you will be. Now, is there anything wrong with losing weight, with buying a nicer house, with buying more stylish clothes? Absolutely not. 
But to think that doing those things will bring lasting joy to your life is not true. Those are voices that are telling you lies. And I have to be honest with you, sometimes the voices that destroy contentment come from people who love you. You have to recognize that. In my own life, I've seen this happen. When I, was, when I first became a pastor, I pastored a church so small, there's actually a life group in our church today that is twice the size of my first congregation. I mean, if we had 40 people on a Sunday, it's like, hey, is it high attendance day and nobody told me? So small church, and in a small church, the pastor does basically everything. I actually cleaned the church. I vacuumed and raked leaves and and kept the church clean. They paid me a little extra for that, but they had to because we had a little girl at that point. Um, You know, I I drove people to doctor's appointments. I I was at every hospital visit. I, I preached three times a week. I taught a Sunday school class. I led every meeting. I did everything. And, and I would talk to my friends and, and people who love me, and, and they would say, you know, you shouldn't have to do that. You're the pastor. They're, the people of the church need to step up and, and take some of that off of your shoulders. And they were right. It's not a healthy uh, model for a church for the, the paid staff to do all the ministry work. That's not the way a church is supposed to function. The body of Christ is supposed to work together. But even though they were right, and even though they meant well, their voices were destroying my contentment because the truth was, I loved that church. I loved being pastor because I was like, hey, I'm getting paid a living wage to do what I love. I'm getting paid to serve God and love His people. What could be better? But after listening to my friends and relatives talk, I started to go, wait a second. I deserve better than this. I mean, look at brother so-and-so in that church down the road. I mean, he's not that great a preacher. I've heard him before. He's, I'm at least as good as him. And he's got all these people helping him out so he can just focus on preaching and, and, and ministry. And, and well, I deserve that too. And the Holy Spirit began to speak to my heart, not in an audible way. I'm not a mystic, but, but in a way that was very clear and unmistakable. He said... Listen, knucklehead, because that's a very spiritual word. He said, listen, knucklehead, if you want to talk deserve, let's talk deserve. You don't deserve to be saved. You don't deserve to be forgiven. You don't deserve to be a child of God. You definitely don't deserve to be the shepherd of part of my family. And I was realizing, man, there's, way, there's already way too many prima donna preachers in American Christianity today. And I was headed down that path myself, and God smacked me down. Recognize the voices that destroy contentment. The friends who mean well, who say things like, you know, you deserve a man who treats you better than your husband. You know, you deserve better than what you have. They mean well. They love you. But what they're saying isn't the voice of God. Recognize that for what it is. And then finally, pray. Pray for contentment. Verse 13. uh, Remember, verse 13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Raise your hand if you've heard that before today. Yeah, absolutely. Now raise your hand if that's like one of your top ten favorite verses in the Bible. Okay? There's a lot of Christians who love that verse. Let me tell you something. A lot of Christians misunderstand that verse. 
You know, Jerry Seinfeld talks about how if you buy a kid a Superman costume for Halloween, you turn that costume over, it'll, it'll have a little warning. You know, the lawyers have made them say this. It says, Buy warning, buying this costume does not actually enable one to fly. So that's my, that's my, uh, that's my same statement about Philippians 4.13. Philippians 4.13, knowing the Lord doesn't enable you to fly. Okay? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me doesn't mean I can do whatever I want to do. Because here I am, I'm, I'm 47 years old and five foot something, and I can look at Philippians 4.13 and say, I want to be an NFL quarterback, and that would be funny to watch, let me tell you. You can't do whatever you want. That's not what that verse is about. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I've lost everything. For the sake of Christ, I've lost everything. And yet, I still have this joy. Why? Because Jesus gives me the power. He gives me the power to find contentment in what I have. And so instead of saying, it's so unjust, I'm in jail, I'm able to rejoice because if I wasn't in jail, I wouldn't be able to preach the gospel to all these Roman guards and Roman officials, and some of them are getting saved. And oh, it's so lousy, I, I want to be out there doing things. No, if... If I hadn't been arrested, I wouldn't have time to write all these letters that have become Scripture that have changed the lives of millions of people for all these years. Paul is able to rejoice. Why? Because Jesus gives him strength. What Paul is saying is, I'm not content because I'm some fantastically mature person who's just a higher level of character than you shallow peons out there. No, I am only able to do this because of the strength Christ provides me for. And if that's true of him, it's true of you and me, which means we need to pray for contentment. We need to pray and say, Lord, show me how to be content. And here's the thing. The one who healed the blind and raised a little girl from the dead and, and called to Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. And out he staggers, wrapped up in his burial clothes. The one who touched a, a, a crippled man and said, rise and walk, and he did. The one who cast out demons and the demons fled screaming in terror. I guarantee you, you begin to pray diligently, Lord, I have always been a complaining, negative person about my circumstances. Teach me to be content. You pray for that, you want that, and Christ is going to give it to you. And everyone's going to wonder, what on earth happened to you? I used to hate being around you. You brought me down every time I was around you. But now, I can't see anything outwardly that's changed in your life, but all of a sudden, you're this, you're this brand new person. He can do it. He will do it. And let me just say one more time, because I know, I know how people think. I'm one of them, after all. You know, I'm one of you human type people. There are some of you, maybe a lot of you, who are saying, okay, it's all well and good. Contentment sounds great. But, you know, if I settle for contentment, if I, if I strive for contentment, isn't that like settling? Isn't that like saying, this is as good as it's ever going to get? Because shouldn't I push for more? Shouldn't I put the pedal on the metal? I mean, isn't it wrong to strive for contentment when there's so much more out there? Two things. I believe this so strongly, number one, that I say this with absolute sincerity. If a genie popped out of a bottle and said, you can either have a million dollars tax-free or perfect contentment for the rest of your life with whatever you have, I would choose B. I would choose option B every day of the week and twice on Sundays. And here's why. Because a million dollars tax-free is not going to make you as happy as you think and it's not going to last as long as you think. 
I've never actually had a million dollars, but I've seen people who have. It doesn't work out. Neither does that perfect relationship or that perfect circumstance or that perfect job that you think is going to make you happy. All those things go away. Contentment lasts. But the second reason, the second reason why pursuing contentment is not settling, in fact, it's the exact opposite of settling, is this. The story of the Bible, the story of the Bible, I'll tell you this, and if you never read a word of the Scriptures, you'll know what you need to know. The story of the Bible is that God became a man, which means that He gave up all the good things about being God. Don't have to physically labor. You never have to be hungry. You never have to get sick. You're always treated with adoration and and blessing. You don't have to die. He gave all of that up, became a man named Jesus. Why? So that he could die. It's the only reason God became a man. It wasn't to teach us. It wasn't to do miracles. He did those things, but that wasn't the point. The point was... He had to take a physical body that would die so he could give his life for our lives. What does that tell you? It tells you you're really important to God. So, do the math with me. That means that if there's something you absolutely have to have in order to be happy, he's going to give it to you. And if he hasn't given it to you yet, It's either because it's coming or you don't need it. What I'm saying is, you can trust a God who loves you that much. You can trust Him. You're not settling when you choose to put your trust in a God who gives His life for you. And that means that no matter what happens from this point forward, if you choose to trust Him in that way, and pursue contentment. That means you can say, you can say, even when your feet are tired, even when your heart is broken, even when your your mind is full of fear and doubt and worry, in all circumstances you can say, yes, but my soul is rested. Don't you want to pursue that?